hppodcraft.com. Neuralathotep, the crawling chaos. I am the last. I will tell the audience void. What does that mean, the audience void? The audience void? I don't, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I don't know, and you don't know. Maybe hmm. we I could, wish we had a guest here that we could talk to. A guest would be really helpful right now. Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> we do have a guest. Yay! <laughs> what luck. This, uh, this week's guest is Mr. Ken Height. Hi. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much. So, Ken, do you happen to know what the audience void is? Well, I think that the audience void is, um, it would be the listening void. So it's, it's simultaneously, he's telling his listeners, but he's also saying that nothing is out there to listen. I mean, it's a classic Lovecraftian, have your cake and eat it too, right? Yeah, it's really an interesting little, <laughs> audience meaning receptive to sound, but it's a void, so it's going in and disappearing at the yeah, same no, time. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Well, uh, Ken, or, or Kenneth, as he goes by when he's publishing, yes. uh, we've referenced a lot of times on the show. He wrote a book called Tour to Lovecraft that has been very popular among our resources. Uh-huh, absolutely. And uh, I recommend all of our listeners check out. And Kenneth also just recently released a book called Cthulhu 101, which we talked about briefly on our Facebook page. Yes. But, uh, Chris, you bought the book, right? I did buy the book. I love it. It's great. It's, yep. it's, what was the application of that book? Oh, right, yeah, for my girlfriend. Right. Uh, my fiancé. Uh, it was a, a book to kind of... You know, give to her. Um, of course, it's difficult to sometimes get her to actually read uh, those types of things, but uh, Cthulhu 101 is easily digestible. And uh, it's got stuff in there that I haven't even known about. So uh, it's good for the beginner, it's good for the somewhat less beginning <laughs> person. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's written basically as a way into the... I mean, if you walk into a store uh, like uh, the Source Comics and Games in Minneapolis or any really good game store or you know, geek store in general, mm-hmm. they'll have a whole wall of Lovecraft stuff by now. They'll have all the DVDs, they'll have you know stuffed animals, they'll have the games, they'll have books, they'll have everything. And it's kind of imposing if all you wanted to do is understand what your boyfriend was talking about. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so the goal was to present something that will give you the grounding and then hopefully point you in other directions that you might have fun and so if you're like wow I didn't know that Metallica had Lovecraft themed music I'm a Metallica fan I'd like to find out more about this you can do that or if you're a gamer you can say oh look card games about Cthulhu that's fun Excellent. you know and so the, the goal is just to point everybody that's interested in whatever direction they want to go next Wow, it's a public service in a way. It is a public exactly. service. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, today we're going to point you in the direction of two stories. Yes. Nyarlathotep, that's how we're choosing to pronounce it, although I'm sure there's more Egyptian ways to say yeah, it. Andrew Lehman pronounces it uh, Nyarlathotep. Well, yeah, that's closer to Imhotep, who is the mummy in The Mummy. Yeah, the mummy in The Mummy. Um, I use Nyarlathotep myself, yeah. so it's the same basic one as you guys. Right. right. So, agreed. Agreed. Um, since Hotep is uh, the Egyptian word, it, you should probably, if you're being all pedantic about it, Say Nyarlat Hotep because it's not a th sound, right? Yeah. I think we just settled it here just now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll all pronounce it as Nyarlathotep from now on. Exactly. Everybody. Uh, <laughs> so we're we're going to cover that story first, and then we're going to move on to another one that is kind of related, sort of, at, yeah. at least semantically, and that's called the crawling chaos. And thematically, I and think thematically. Yeah. I do not recall distinctly when it began, but it was months ago. The general tension was horrible. A sense of monstrous guilt was upon the land, and out of the abysses between the stars swept chill currents that made men shiver in dark and lonely places. There was a demonic alteration in the sequence of the seasons. The autumn heat lingered fearsomely, and everyone felt that the world 
and perhaps the universe had passed from the control of known gods or forces to that of gods or forces which were unknown. So there's political upheaval going yeah. on, the seasons are all out of whack. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's like they say in the Bible, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And earthquakes and, and all kinds of things. And that's how you'll know when the end times are coming. Right, it's exactly like that. We have It's that feeling that if, the yeah. signs are out, the stars are right, and the things are not going well. Pending apocalypse, if yes. you will. And, and again, the great thing about apocalypses, and this was true when John was writing Revelation, and it's true now, regardless of what you say, you can point to it and say, oh, we're in a season of political and social upheaval right now. Mm-hmm. And we have danger that's widespread yeah. and all-embracing. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the global warming guys will tell you that uh, there's a demoniacal alteration of the sequence of the seasons. Uh-huh. And the autumn heat is lingering. I mean, it's all, you, you just pull things right out and say, look, it's right now, and your author is right around the corner. Yeah, then our left step is Al Gore. Yeah, what? No, maybe. wait a minute, that's not. <laughs> well, he does have a convincing slideshow. <laughs> yes, he does. He does have he a does convincing... have a convincing slideshow. Not, well, of course, this is the subject yeah. of our so, story. Uh... And it was then that Nirolathotep came out of Egypt. Who he was, none could tell. But he was of the old native blood and looked like a pharaoh. So this is we're introducing Nirolathotep. Yes. Right. Uh, in this time of tumultuous uh, events, Nyarlathotep comes out of Egypt. and He goes on to describe him as the swarthy, sinister man. Uh, he's riven, risen up out of the blackness of 27 centuries. Yeah, uh, which I believe is the 22nd dynasty. If, if you want to look back tw- wow. 27 centuries, that would be the 27, uh, 22nd dynasty of the Egyptian pharaohs. I don't remember exactly what wow. time that is. Well, he shows up and he's well known because he, he, he does these sort of uh, scientific exhibitions of power that freak people out. You know, it says he takes glass instruments and uses and, them. For and mechanical instruments. Yeah. Strange glass instruments and strange mechanical and makes even stranger instruments. Right. Yeah. So he's in a way he's a little like te- Tesla. Yeah. There is uh, there is a little bit of a similarity that he's having these kind of scientific uh, displays of power. Yeah. And I believe a writer says that Lovecraft may have taken inspiration from it. Yes, Will Murray, that's who said it. Right. He's a scholar of pulp uh, fiction in general. And he says that because Tesla would go on these itinerant uh, road shows in which he would demonstrate the glories of alternating current power and predict a future of sort of perfect utopia built by electricity, mm-hmm. that this is where Lovecraft is drawing the notion of a guy who's going around putting on these shows of mystical electrical power and predicting the destruction of the universe. Although there is a fundamental difference between Nyarlathotep and Tesla. Uh, it's actually, in this paragraph it says, And where Nyarlathotep went, rest vanished. For the small hours were rent with the screams of nightmare. Never before had the screams of nightmare been such a public problem. Now the wise men almost wished they could forbid sleep in the small hours, so that the shrieks of cities might less horribly disturb the pale, pitying moon as it glimmered on green waters gliding under bridges and old steeples crumbling against a sickly sky. Now that's, that's pretty, that's a, a serious social problem. Yeah, I know, I love <laughs> it. Never before have we had this public problem. No, I think it's a, a pretty awesome that this guy is making people so freaked out that enough people are screaming in mm. their sleep that other people can hear it. You yeah. know, like there's a cacophony of screams <sighs> of nightmares. It's actually, uh, it's quite frightening. It's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. And yeah, actually, if you think about it, you know, think about what it would mean if, you know, in Los Angeles or in Chicago, enough people knew about 
you know, people screaming in their nightmares that it was like public comment. You'd come out and say, man, all that screaming last night. Yeah, did you hear that? <laughs> You're all that screaming? Yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty uh, cool. So our, our writer goes on to tell us, I remember when Nia Lathotep came to my city. <laughs> uh, he had a friend who had told him, you got to check out the show. And, uh, and the protagonist says, you know, he was burning with eagerness to explore Nyarlathotep's uttermost mysteries. <laughs> uh, so the guy's friend tells him, you know, he throws up these images on a screen that prophecy things that are pretty frightening. Mm -hmm. you, you really must go see it. Yeah. So the protagonist does. He says, uh, It was in the hot autumn that I went through the night with the restless crowds to see Nyarlathotep. Through the stifling night and up the endless stairs into the choking room. And shadowed on a screen, I saw hooded forms amidst ruins, and yellow evil faces peering from behind fallen monuments. And I saw the world battling against blackness, against the waves of destruction from ultimate space, whirling, churning, struggling around the dimming, cooling sun. Then the sparks played amazingly around the heads of the spectators, and hair stood up on end while shadows more grotesque than I can tell came out and squatted on the heads. And when I, who was colder and more scientific than the rest, mumbled a trembling protest about imposture and static electricity, Nirolathotep drove us all out down the dizzy stairs into the damp, hot, deserted midnight streets i love the sense of this crowded almost sideshow theater you know yeah. you go up these stairs and it's this little choking room where everybody uh -huh. has to cluster in it this does sound i have to say it does sound a little like the the tesla thing you know people's mm. hair standing up on end you know just this right. kind of energy but our narrator just mm. says hey this is this is just yeah, he tries to trickery. debunk it he tries to debunk it right in the middle of the thing yeah says you know hey beat it you people right. are jokers yeah, he reacts like yuri geller on johnny carson or something <laughs> Get out of here! He's very angry. Tesla is only one of the people that's going around at this time, from like 1850 to the 40s. There's itinerant showmen who do sort of uh, stereopticon slides, and then they would do uh, movie reels or whatever, and then they would also put on some kind of magic show, whether mm -hmm. it's overtly technological like Tesla or it would be spiritual. Uh, certain there was a guy named Moody who did this in the 30s who would go around and basically do Tesla's show, and he would do it as sort of a revival tent sermon. Oh, right, yeah. you know, and I've got the power of the Holy Spirit on me, and then he would glow with with uh, static electricity. How oh, cool! Wow. And so you you have this kind of thing going on. So it's not just Tesla. Tesla is the one that we remember because he also you know invented radio and AC power. Right, but exactly. There's a lot of people who go around and have this kind of public spectacle, and you mm -hmm. combine it with you know if if it's a religious thing, it's slides of of, of Jerusalem or of the Bible country, or if, if you're doing uh, a sort of a scientific utopia, you have pictures of your wonderful laboratory that public subscription can help you build or right. whatever it happens to be. Wow, yeah, that's that's super cool. And that, that kind of frames it a little bit differently. Yeah. I mean, at, you know, this time when Lovecraft was writing the story, which was about 1920, uh, the, these were a lot more common than, yeah. than what I realized right now. And that he is using it for religious bent to an extent, except, uh, you know, instead of to incite religious mania, it's to incite despair about the future of the human race and the planet. Perhaps. Yeah, well, just <laughs> kind of being a prophet of, of doom. And and the things that he shows the people and that he tells them are somewhat destructive to their psyches, as is hinted at earlier in the story. But uh, when he tells everybody to, to get out, they all kind of separate into the night in clusters. It says, uh, I believe we felt something coming down from the greenish moon. 
for when we began to depend on its light, we drifted into curious, involuntary formations and seemed to know our destinations, though we dared not think of them. So the crowd has broken off into these little columns. Yeah. Well, you know, as they will, you know, people are parked in different places or their homes are in different directions. Of yeah. course, people are just kind of, kind of... But when they get out of the theater, I mean, the world sort of looks different. Yeah. Some of the towers that they're familiar with are not there or it looked like they've rotted into some kind of decay. Some kind of mass hysteria seems to, to be taking place yeah. or maybe the world is actually uh, falling apart. But as the groups, uh, they, they split off, you, yeah. hear, uh, you hear the one group and they just start kind of screaming... Yeah, it says, uh, One disappeared in a narrow alley to the left, leaving only the echo of a shocking moan. Another filed down a weed-choked subway entrance, howling with a laughter that was mad. My own column was sucked out toward the open country, and presently felt a chill which was not of the hot autumn. For as we stalked out on the dark moor, we beheld around us the hellish moon glitter of evil snows. Evil snows. (laughs) <laughs> That's a great image. Well, yeah, I mean, it gives it very dark. You know, there's a, something really cool about snow at night is the, just the contrast. You know, yeah. it's the dark sky and the, the white snow. And it's yeah. It's well, really it was a startling cool. image to me. I mean, I didn't expect it. There's suddenly this caravan of strangers walking off into this gulf of the snowy plateau, sort of. They've become this mindless servants to, to Nyarlathotep. Yeah, well, that's how I interpret it. Well, I think that, I, I, obviously, yes, because uh, Nyarlathotep have put the, the, the whammy on them somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's like post-hypnotic you know, compulsion from all the things that they saw but can't explain in the show, or if it, he just has sent them to a world where the moon makes them do these horrible things, right. or whatever it is. But the interesting thing to me about the evil snows is that you've got that same thing that he sets up at the very beginning of the story where he talks about the demonic alteration of the seasons and how it's unusually hot even though it's winter right they come out into the autumn heat but there's also this evil snow, snow which he can't explain yeah well i mean another sign you know well another one of the things that crossed my mind is sometimes uh, ash mm-hmm. does seem like snow and oh. if there's this kind of oh, yeah. you know, destruction that's yeah. going on you know like uh, the world's a crematorium yeah exactly so yeah. maybe that's that that could be a part of it i doubt it but that might just be something i'm putting onto it you guys are freaking me out man <laughs> This story concludes the wonderful paragraph. Screamingly sentient, dumbly delirious, only the gods that were can tell. A sickened, sensitive shadow writhing in hands that are not hands. Whirled blindly past ghastly midnights of rotting creation. Corpses of dead worlds with sores that were cities. Charnel winds that brush the pallid stars and make them flicker low. Beyond the world's vague ghosts of monstrous things half-seen columns of unsanctified temples that rest on nameless rocks beneath space and reach up to dizzy vacua above the spheres of light and darkness. And through this revolting graveyard of the universe, the muffled, maddening beating of drums and thin, monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time. The detestable pounding and piping whereunto dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic, tenebrous, ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles whose soul is Nirolathotep. Man, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. 
Although, you know, Nyarlathotep seems to be the most frequently occurring natural ingredient in uh, Lovecraft's work. I mean, oh. the, the name shows up constantly. Yeah, he throws it in, and when he said with amigos, yeah. like in Whisperer, I remember they talk about it, and I think the, it pops up too in uh, uh, there's Shadow lots of over stories. Ismoth. Yeah, and, and well, so Nyarlathotep as a character, I think, shows up more often than any of the non-human characters in Lovecraft's work. Yeah, because he uh, gets to be in uh, Dream Quest, and he gets to be in uh, the Sonnet Cycle, Fungi Room Yugget, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and he gets to be um, in Whisperer, because he, he may be one of the things present at, at one of the Migos Black Mass. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yep. Because he has this sort of um, human aspect that he has even in this story, he shows up on screen. It's easier to bring him on than it is to bring on, you know, Cthulhu or Azathoth. Right, right. And he, yeah, he appears as a, a man with ebony black skin and eyes. In, uh, and one of the stories. Dreams yeah. in the Witch House. Is it Dreams in the Witch House they talk about? Yeah, because he's the black man of the, of the witch cult. Yeah, right, he's yeah. the black man in the woods. Yeah. And, but he also appears in other forms as this tentacled beast, I think, yeah. later. And, uh, and so he, he's got it. Now, some people think he's a shapeshifter. Yeah, I've, I've read, you know, some, I mean, people are just trying to put together these kind of very different images of Nyarlathotep. But. Mm-hmm. Even, even in this story, you've got um, Nyarlathotep is both this uh, sort of itinerant showman who is sort of the Antichrist figure, but then he's also the center of these uh, wheeling uh, mute flutist uh, entities at the set, at the at the death of the cosmos. So the soul of the even gods. one story, he's there's two different versions of it. Yeah, and then in um, uh, in Trail of Cthulhu, I sort of break down all the different Nyarlathotep's that have shown up. You know, not just in the stories, but also in the in the later you know post Lovecraft mythos fiction, and then also in the game. So you have Nyarlathotep as the as the great god of the uh, of the Mygo, who is a different entity perhaps than Nyarlathotep, the guy who just lives to molest uh, Randolph Carter and doesn't actually seem <laughs> to have any larger agenda. <laughs> but then he's also the black man of the, of the witch cult from right. uh, Witch House, and he's, he's called um, the Mighty Messenger, so he's sort of the guy who the other, the, the other gods send out to do their will. Maybe he's the, the interface between uh, the, 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 greater, the greater gods and mankind. So gotcha. there, there's a million different ways you can look at your lots of time. And then Robert Block, of course, went crazy and wrote, like, six or seven or eight uh, near lots of type stories in which he's just this black pharaoh entity, you know, sort of like the, the Egyptian god Set, right. who doesn't gotcha. really have a larger, you know, cosmic agenda right. that just exists to mostly curse things and make, <laughs> and make movies. And I believe that uh, a Snyder from One Day at a Time was also a manifestation of near lots <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. 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 Very possible. Yeah. <laughs> Although also um, Stephen King says that Randall Flagg in the stand, in the stand is a manifestation of near lots of time. Whoa. I did not know that. Know yeah, that. If, if you read the, not the, the unedited version, one that he published mm-hmm. uh, after he stopped meeting editors or <laughs> getting editors, whichever, uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. at the very, very end when Randall Flagg is sort of, you know, doing his villain vamp and talking about all the things that he's done, one of the names that he gives is Nero Lothar. Oh, That's wow. Nice. That's really neat. That's totally rad. Well, now, one of the names that Nyarlathotep is called by is the Crawling Chaos. Yes. Which is the title of our next story. I don't think the Crawling Chaos in that next story is actually referring to Nyarlathotep. No, it's not. In fact, uh, Lovecraft uh, mentioned that he liked the way it sounded, and that's why he uh, just kind of threw it in. Gotcha. Well, before we jump into that story, I just want to say that um, our reader today is Michael Robert Holmes. Michael R. Holmes, he did a wonderful job on Nyarlathotep. He's going to do another great job in the next story. He's 
The Crawling Chaos. Chaos. He's collaborating with us. Now, Lovecraft had a collaborator for this story as well. Yes. We've mentioned her before, albeit briefly, Uh uh, Winifred Jackson. We mentioned Winifred uh, in Beyond the Wall of Sleep because she had written a story with him previously called The Green Green Meadow, which was a a dream story. And then we talked about her again because we did the collaboration Poetry in the Gods, which he did with Anna Helen Crofts. Yes. uh, We we didn't know much about her. We don't know much about her. But uh, Winifred Jackson, we do actually know a little bit about her. We do know some stuff about her. Before we get into the story, do you want to talk about her? Yeah, why don't we just go ahead and touch on that real quick? Uh, She's a co-writer of the story. Yeah, well, from from what I've read, it... Basically, they wrote together, and she wrote to Lovecraft about her dream, the dream that she had. And then he took that dream and then made this story. So it's not really a collaboration in the sense of, like, they wrote drafts and passed them back and forth to each other. But they were correspondents. They were correspondents. And uh, it's rumored that they might have had some kind of romance going on. You don't say. I do say. Um, The only real hint to this is that uh, Sonia Green, Lovecraft's wife, uh, mm-hmm. mentioned that she had stolen Lovecraft away from uh, Victoria Jackson. It's not away from <laughs> Victoria Jackson. We keep making this mistake. I know. It's... And when I picture her in my mind, I imagine Victoria Jackson from Saturday Night Live. Well, you know, her pen name is actually um, Elizabeth Berkeley. So right. I've been picturing her as Elizabeth Berkeley. In fact, Lovecraft wrote a poem after receiving a, a photograph called Showgirls, not Showgirls. No, he wrote. <laughs> it was a terrible poem, but it had a real resurgence in the. It was with the fans of camp. In the camp, uh, camp community. <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin's really great. Big. Yeah, Kyle McLaughlin really brought something to the. No, no, he he wrote. <laughs> upon receiving a picture of her in the mail, uh-huh. uh, he wrote a poem back to her at Christmas and this year, the year the story was written, which was 1920, uh-huh. called "On Receiving a Portraiture of Mrs. Berkeley." Hmm. Which is a pen name that she went by. Yeah. So it's uh, maybe. I, there was... I did find a photo of her online as well. Yeah, there is a photo of her. Um, so we'll put that on the Facebook page. Yeah, she's very beautiful. Woman. She's uh, she's attractive. I could see why Lovecraft yeah. would. Uh, kind no of crawling fancy. chaos going on there. Some other background stuff on her is before she. I, there wasn't really a dating because supposedly the only real records that exist of them. Um, actually being face-to-face with each other was when there was a conference, one of right. those amateur conferences going on. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't meet. It's just we never heard about it. The only time that it's ever mentioned is at these conferences. Rather, they didn't sneak off after the conference to you know look deeply into each other's eyes and talk about their dreams. Exactly. I think that happened. I like to think that that yeah. happened, too. And, I mean... I mean, at the period, people, I don't think, wrote as much about their relationships, especially yeah. if they weren't married. So for all we know, Lovecraft could have been meeting up with her in CD motel rooms. It will and... be in my Lovecraft by Night film, which I'm still working on, <laughs> by the way. But one of the other interesting... Th- I mean, she was pretty prolific and um, wrote a lot of stuff. Yeah. She's a poetess. Uh, she's a poetess. And she was actually corresponded with Samuel Loveman after mm-hmm. Lovecraft's death. Mm-hmm. And she kind of dish some dirt on Lovecraft to Loveman, to Samuel Loveman, his friend yeah. Loveman, just about kind of how bad of a racist he was. Well, she might have been particularly offended by that because in her past, before she met Lovecraft, she was actually married to an African-American. Yeah, and she uh, had a very serious relationship with another African-American poet uh, after she, you know, hung out with Lovecraft or whatever right. that was. And so I well, could I think... they were married as well, wasn't it, to Braithwaite? Yeah, no, no, I don't think she was married to him. So... Lovecraft might have been a little upset had he known that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, well, Samuel Lovin was upset when he found out from her uh, his feelings on things. And then Samuel Loveman burned a bunch of Lovecraft's letters, right. which supposedly there's 500 pages worth. Yeah. He and was so offended by his He was so offended by his uh, hypocrisy, I think is, yeah. what he, is the word he used. 
and uh, you know lost a bunch of, of letters. So okay. there's a little bit of social drama going on with Lovecraft. Getting into the story. Getting into the story, The Crawling Chaos, it actually begins with a little account of uh, opium. It says, Of the pleasures and pains of opium, much has been written. And the world knows well the beauty, the terror, and the mystery of those obscure realms into which the inspired dreamer is transported. But much as has been told, no man has yet dared intimate the nature of the phantasms thus unfolded to the mind, or hint at the direction of the unheard-of roads along whose ornate and exotic course the partaker of the drug is so irresistibly born. I took opium but once, in the year of the plague, when doctors sought to deaden the agonies they could not cure. There was an overdose. My physician was worn out with horror and exertion, and I traveled very far indeed. In the end, I returned and lived, but my nights are filled with strange memories, nor have I ever permitted doctor to give me opium again. So our narrator is suffering from a plague that's going on, or uh, just kind of a, a, a serious bug that's, that's, that's happening. He's really sick. Doctor gives him some opium to help his pain, but then he goes kind of into this trance. Yeah, he sort of posits here that opium will give us access to different, not just perception, but real realms. Of yeah, and time. Yeah. It's pretty psychedelic. It is psychedelic. I, as we've been reading these stories, I never thought of Lovecraft in those terms, but drugs do come up oh, yeah, a fairly of, frequently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the uh, other mythos stories, you've had the plutonium drug that I think it's uh, Clark Ashton Smith invents, right? That takes your mind out of out of your its present time. Oh, yeah. in, in that story, I think it sends it back to Ubusawa or, oh, or right. wherever to, to ancient primordial times. Yes, yeah, that's Which right. What he says, De, Quin De Quincey says about opium that it brings you back to primordial Asia. Yeah, you know, it's the same sort of uh, principle that you're on an opium trip. You're actually going somewhere. Which yeah. I, yeah. What, drug mystics say anyway that you're right, yeah. opening the doors of perception and seeing a truer world than the one that we have yeah those that's exactly the phrase that i thought of uh, the, the doors of perception isn't that an aldous huxley uh, yeah I think so. yeah, yeah. Uh, so he starts tripping out and the pounding <laughs> <laughs> just break it down to that he's tripping out yeah he's i mean you know i think actually ken you had a great we'll see like a one-line description of this entire story before we started reading <laughs> all right um uh he goes on a bad trip and ends the world. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's the story. Do we need to do the synopsis? <laughs> That's it. So, well, we'll go into a little more no, detail. We'll go so he goes on this trip, bad trip, and he says, For a moment, my surroundings seemed confused, like a projected image hopelessly out of focus. But gradually I realized my solitary presence in a strange and beautiful room lighted by many windows. Slowly but inexorably crawling upon my consciousness and rising above every other impression came a dizzying fear of the unknown, a fear all the greater because I could not analyze it, and seeming to concern a stealthily approaching menace, not death, but some nameless, unheard of thing inexpressibly more ghastly and abhorrent. So he senses something terrible is coming. Again, it's a bad, it's a bad drug trip. He, he, he gets paranoid after he, after he pops. It's not just the paranoia, it's, it's this pounding, this pounding that was in his head, but is now outside of this house. And so he tries to you know, stop it by closing up all the shutters, but curiosity gets the best of him. So goes to one of the windows and he wants to see what's going on outside. And I beheld such a sight as I had never beheld before, in which no living person can have seen save in the delirium of fever or in the inferno of opium. 
The building stood on a narrow point of land, or what was now a narrow point of land, fully 300 feet above what must lately have been a seething vortex of mad waters. On the far horizon, ghoulish black clouds of grotesque contour were resting and brooding like unwholesome vultures. The waves were dark and purplish, almost black, and clutched at the yielding red mud of the banks as if with uncouth, greedy hands. I could not but feel that some noxious marine mind had declared a war of extermination upon all the solid ground, perhaps abetted by the angry sky. From this house, he sees that the ocean is basically eating away at this, this the shore and, and around the house. So the it's house is going to be pulled. Of it. Yeah, it's a really evocative and creepy and scary. And and it, you know, it freaks this dude out. Freak me out, too. I would, I'd be freaked out. And the land has changed, too. He looks at, you know, the aside from these mad waters that are rushing around, surrounding and eating up the land, he sees the vegetation around him is tropical and crazy. Yes. Yeah, it's a not New England kind of, uh, there's palm trees and things. Is yeah. He says. He sees a path, and he walks along it. He hears some rustling in the bushes, and he, he begins quoting, or, or he, he says, Tiger, tiger, is there a beast out here? Yeah, and it brings up Kipling. My mind wandered back to an ancient and classical story of tigers which I had read. I strove to recall the author, but had difficulty. Then, in the midst of my fear, I remembered that the tale was by Rudyard Kipling. Nor did the grotesqueness of deeming him an ancient author occur to me. I wished for the volume containing the story, and had almost started back toward the doomed cottage to procure it when my better sense and the lure of the palm prevented me. Now, so this is a little bit of a, of a, of a hint here, I think, is that he says it's an ancient story, which obviously that story was only was written in 1893? Yes. Okay. Uh, which was part of the Jungle Book stuff. And he... You know, obviously that's only 30 years old from when this story is written, so yeah. it's not ancient. So what extrapolating is that he is in the future. Like, this this trip that he's going on is, is into the future when the world yeah. ends. And we had hints of that all, already when he talks about how uh, the plants might, uh, his native plants might assume these strange forms if the climate altered. Exactly. Yeah. That, that evolution has continued and has changed all of the, um, uh, all of the plants and then the sky and everything else around him over this you know course of millennia or however long it's been exactly exactly there now ensued a series of incidents which transported me to the opposite extremes of ecstasy and horror incidents which i i trembled to recall and dare not seek to interpret no sooner had i crawled beneath the overhanging foliage of the palm than there dropped from its branches a young child of such beauty as i had never held before so, so when he's crawling on the ground trying to get away from this, this ocean coming up, from a tree drops a, a beautiful child, which he says is like a fawn. Yeah, a fawn. Or which is like, you know, like a, a satyr, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. half goat, half, half person sort of thing. Not a nymph. Not a nymph. <laughs> Not a nymph. <laughs> or a dryad. <laughs> and he, he says, hey, come on, come up, come up with me. Yeah. I'm going to help you out. He hears this ethereal singing when the kid drops out of the tree. Well, what does he say? Then, in a tone of silver, it addressed me. It is the end. They have come down through the gloaming from the stars. Now all is over, and beyond the Arinurian streams we shall dwell blissfully in Tello. Now, I, that, that seems like kind of a, a heaven, dreamland yeah. sort of thing, but I don't, I don't... Are those ever referenced again, Ken? Do you know? No, the Tello and the Arinurian streams are pretty much unique to this story. Okay. Although, when I read Tello, I think of Telos, which is Greek for 
uh, the end, right? Yes. So yes. this fellow, if, if, and since Lovecraft knows at least as much Greek as I do, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> my assumption is that he sort of means that to have that same uh, connotation. That, that, yeah, perfect. That yeah. This is the end time, the end land that we're going to. Now, I almost feel like these people are trying to distract him so he doesn't notice. You know, <laughs> This well, tree that grows nymphs and gods. And well, gods. I mean, well, first there's a child, and then he hears the singing, right. and then he, there's like a man and a woman that are also very angelic. Yeah, and, and they descend from and they the tree, descend from and, the tree. And, and they're saying the same thing, come with us. Yeah. And then he does. Like, I mean, he, he yeah. kind of, he finds himself being lifted up. He feels the, the pounding's going away. Everything feels great. Everything's cool. But then he decides to look back down. Yeah, here's a sound, and he looks back. And down there, he basically sees the earth being swallowed up. Yeah, destroyed. And under a ghastly moon, there gleam sights I can never describe. Sights I can never forget. Deserts of corpse-like clay and jungles of ruin and decadence where once stretched the populous plains and villages of my native land. Maelstroms of frothing ocean where once rose the mighty temples of my forefathers. The moon laid pale lilies of light on dead London, and Paris stood up from its damp grave to be sanctified with stardust. Then rose spires monoliths that were weedy but not remembered. Terrible spires and monoliths of lands that men never knew were lands. So it's a little callback to Dagon that there's this sunken continent that nobody knows about. Exactly. Yeah. It shows up at the end times, which is again just what Dagon says is going to happen, but uh, when that continent rises up, uh, boy, everyone's going to be sorry. Which is also kind of ties into The Call of Cthulhu, which of Cthulhu. Has, yeah. hasn't been written yet, but obviously it's feeding into this this idea that Lovecraft's going to later you I know, mean, tap Especially into. when you say, you know, weedy spires. I mean, that instantly you think of, of Ryla. Yeah. Yeah, they're, uh, they're these giant buildings that have all the ocean clinging to them as they rise up into, right, yeah, into the air. Yeah. But at the very end of the story, uh, the Earth is just... It's gone. Yeah, it's it destroyed. Says, uh, and when the smoke cleared away... And I sought to look upon the earth, I beheld against the background of cold, humorous stars. Only the dying sun and the pale, mournful planets searching for their sister. And that's the end. A story I've never read before this, uh, The Crawling Chaos, and before, before we did this podcast, and... I, I, I enjoyed it. It's, it feels like Book of Revelation kind of, you know, the, the end of the world sort of thing, but with a Lovecraft flavor to it. What was on his mind that he was writing these two stories about the end times? That is a good question. Well, his mother at this point was institutionalized mm-hmm. and he was living with his aunts, mm-hmm. but nothing has really changed as far as I can tell. So I, don't, I really don't know. Well, it may just be sort of the common thing that's going on all over. America and all over the world. I mean, 1919 and 1920 were pretty terrible years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you've just come out of World War I, mm-hmm. uh, which has killed an unimaginable number of people. It's demonstrated to you know, virtually everyone paying attention that nothing they thought was true is true. And then you've got the influenza epidemic, which is coming through and killing another right. 60 million people mm-hmm. around the world, including a lot of people in America. And uh, the, the inflation rate is something like 200%. There's huge unemployment. There's strikes. There's anarchists setting off bombs in New York City. Right. It, it's just a crazy time, and people are sort of getting apocalyptic, and they're and they're thinking, hey, maybe nothing is making any sense, yeah. and you know, all this sort of uh, stuff. It, it may not necessarily be filtering into 
you know, decent, uh, upstanding parts of Providence where a uh, <laughs> nice boy is living with his uh, maiden aunt, but he's still, you know, reading about it in the, in, the, in the newspapers or whatever else. And he's also, at this time, he's a very sort of reactionary conservative person, and he's looking around, and everything that he believes to have been permanent has basically been destroyed over the course of the last six years. Yeah. Not to mention, as you, as you point out, his mother, you know, being institutionalized and the rest of his life is sort of falling apart yeah. mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And Ken really nailed it. I mean, there's this sense of political and social upheaval, and uh, people just have this apprehension for that they're in danger. You know, mm-hmm. it's just coming, and it's that general feeling. But I like that he says a sense of monstrous guilt is on the land. So it's almost that everybody feels responsible for what is happening yeah. to them. You can make that argument that the period right after World War One is such a period for all of Western civilization. I think you can make the argument that a lot of for a lot of people. You know the you know the millennium that just passed, and then the the, the first few years of the 21st century, and then that same sort of a period of you know monstrous guilt, um, yeah. uh, an intellectual doom coming down on us, uh, or right after World War II with the with the atomic bomb and the realization that the Cold War is just starting. Yeah, so you, you get sort of periods where people are more apocalyptic rather than less apocalyptic. Yeah. And I think Lovecraft is writing during one of those, and we're listening to him during another one of those. Yeah, yeah. it's absolutely true. Great, yeah. Uh, so, Ken, thank you so much for doing the podcast today and, and joining us from lovely Chicago. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Happy to do it, man. Thanks a lot for the invitation. You know, anytime. Uh, we'll, we'll have you back for sure. This has been uh, awesome. Yeah, this has been great. So much great information. I've learned something today. Me too. I, uh, I think we've all learned something today. We have all learned something. <laughs> don't, don't do opium. Don't, don't do opium. Do opium. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Next week, Chad, what are we doing? Oh, we will be doing another double feature. We're going oh, to cover two exciting. small stories. Ex Oblivione and uh, The Nameless City. I said, it sounds like an Italian sub when I said <laughs> I just want to remind all the listeners to go check out Cthulhu 101. Uh, it sounds like it'd be a great book to give to folks to get them interested in Lovecraft so that they can understand what we're talking about here on the podcast. Exactly. So it's, see what I just did there? Yeah. It was a little uh, synergy. Is what a little they call synergy. That. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, so go pick that book up. I, I Again, I want to thank Michael Holmes, our reader today. Great actor, good friend, a fan of the show, and, and uh, we were glad to have him. Uh, with that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Ken Height. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.